Father, I want to praise you tonight, Lord, because there's one big free will offering here tonight. Father, no one in this room has been coerced into coming here. No one is here because they've been forced into it. We're here, Father, because we love you so much. That's our only reason. We've come of our own free will. Father, I thank you because a burnt offering in Leviticus 14, 1, was always given as a result of a free will. And it says that the burnt offering was acceptable in your sight. It was a sweet savour unto you. I want to thank you, Lord, that this evening begins with a sweet savour to you, because we're all here with a free will. I want to praise you, Lord, because Jesus said, No man takes my life from me, but I give it. Father, it was a free will offering, and it was beautiful and wonderful in your sight. Father, may we realize tonight, Lord, that we're on very hallowed ground here, very holy ground, because the Son of God is walking among us. Oh, Father, I just praise you. We have the power of prayer to come straight through to you. We have the Word of God, which has so many treasures and promises for us. And more than anything else, we have the love of Jesus just inside our hearts. Father, I want to praise you because tonight, Lord, we move with one accord because we love one another. Father, and you said that the whole law is bound up in this. Thank you, Lord. I praise you tonight, Lord, because you are precious. You're the only precious one. Father, tonight we just want to see Jesus. Tonight we just want to know him in a deeper way, in great reality in our midst. Father, tonight we come together because we are in love with you, Lord. We're coming just to see Jesus tonight. Father, may flesh be still entirely, Lord. And may the Spirit be able to move right through us, Lord. Make us clean, empty vessels, ready to receive your filling, ready to receive the good things that you've got for us. Father, I thank you because the good things didn't end with Jesus. They began with Jesus. Father, and they got better. Hallelujah. Because your Holy Spirit is among us. And not only do we have the blessings that Jesus brought, but we have the Holy Spirit ministering them to us. We have the wonderful blessing of prophecy. Father, that we know what's happening in the future. It gives peace and contentment to us. Oh, Father, what a, a fantastic blessing it is. And I just want to praise you. Oh, Father, do just thrill our hearts more and more with the love of Jesus tonight. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Sorry, I was getting a bit carried away then. Marvellous. Praise the Lord. Well, we're in a wonderfully happy position tonight. I feel... Uh, very thrilled because we have learnt something over these last seven weeks. We've learnt that there is now no barrier between man and God. I've been waiting to do this for all those weeks and I will now do it. The barrier has vanished. There is no barrier whatsoever between God and man. We have the wonderful message of reconciliation. And what is reconciliation? That God has reconciled the world to his Son to himself through his son. You see, he gave his son to redeem the whole world. And we can now go to anyone in the, in the world and say, Jesus has paid for your sins. Jesus loved you. Jesus died specially for you. The chasm that existed between God on the one hand and man on the other hand has been bridged. There's one bridge across it. But what is that bridge? Is it your good deeds? You know, so that you work really hard and somehow you manage to get across? It's not. Was it Buddha? It was not. 
Mohammed, it was not. It was the precious Lord Jesus. God gave his only son. That's why our marvellous message tonight is summed up by Acts 16.31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's as easy as that. And every single person here, I trust, through the Bible studies, now is an informed witness for Jesus. I've, my prayer about this whole course of Bible studies is that now you can witness far more effectively than you've ever done before. I am so thrilled that I can meet any person now and say, yes, I do believe the Word of God. I'm thrilled about that. And we can stand. We're not ashamed anymore, either of the Word of God nor of the message of the Gospel, because it's the power of God unto salvation. And we've got something to shout about. We've got something wonderful to praise God about, that we have a message, a glorious message for a very needy world. Hallelujah. Before we leave the barrier... We've got to study it just a bit more because it's the key to so many other passages in Scripture. Now, I do trust also that as you've been reading the New Testament, things have been fitting a bit more into place after these last few weeks. I trust that that's true. And tonight we're going on to a discussion of the unforgivable sin. Um, you know, most Christians at times wonder, have I committed the unforgivable sin? But before we can study it, we've just got to have another look at the barrier. Again, I've ripped it up, I don't need that anymore. Would you turn, please, to Romans chapter 3. <coughs> Romans chapter 3, and I think I'm going to begin at verse 20. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, it says in verse 20, By the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. And before we go any further, I just want to give a few points on what the law was given for. Why was the law given? The first thing, of course, we must note is that the law was only given to Israel. That's the first thing to note, and it's very important. And many Christians are very mistaken about the position of the law. The law was given for three main reasons, and it's so important to understand these and get them down in the <coughs> notes. The first reason was to prove that man was a sinner. The first reason was to prove that man was a sinner. James 2 verse 10 gives a very interesting statement. It says that if you break the law in one part, you've broken it all. Now, I think most of us, if we look down the list of sins, in the Ten Commandments especially, uh, perhaps, uh, well, a few would apply. But I think most of us would say, well, I've never committed murder. Though, of course, Jesus, when he talked about it, showed clearly that even if you hate, you've committed murder. But leaving that aside, most of us would look down and think, oh, well, we're pretty good, really, as far as that list is concerned. But James brings us to a full stop. James says, break one part. You've broken every part of the law. Now, let's take the first commandment. Thou shalt love the law of thy God with all thine heart. You see, at the age of 16, you didn't love the law of thy God with all thy heart. You see? In fact, many of us didn't know anything about God until we were much older than that. Well, you've broken the law. And all you need is to break it in one place. You've broken the whole lot. 
And unfortunately, the religious Jews came along and they thought that salvation came by keeping the law. They misunderstood it. In fact, they got it exactly the opposite way round. The law was there because it couldn't be kept. It was to prove that man was a sinner and therefore needed a redeemer. That's what the law was for. That's the first point. The second point about the law was that it was a shadow, as Hebrews 10 calls it, of Christ. It was a shadow of Christ. All the holy days, all the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the temple, the priest's garments, all were there to say something about the Lord Jesus. That's what it was. You see, God couldn't leave it at the point of saying, well, man is a sinner. He had to then say, and here's the answer. And the second part of the law said just that, that God has got the answer. You see? Take, for example, the sacrifice. Every time a Jew saw a lamb which was innocent, without spot or blemish, having its <coughs> neck cut, it, he knew something. He knew that that lamb had never done anything wrong in its life. Yet it was being slaughtered for his sins. And he knew that God was going to provide a Messiah who was going to come, who would take the sins away from his people, who was going to die for the sins of the people. So that's the second point. The law then came to prove that man was a sinner. Second, it came to show the answer. It pointed to the Lord Jesus. The third thing was, it gave a set of rules that would give peace in society. Now, not peace so that you can just sit down and say, oh, marvellous, I can go to sleep, I can have a wonderful time. It was peace so that the gospel could be proclaimed. We are told, even today, we Christians, to pray for our country. You may not like the government that's in. You may not like the last government. It's immaterial. We must pray for our country. Why? So that the gospel message can get out. We must have peace in our society, an order in our society, for the gospel message to go out in power. And that's why the law was given. The law was given to Israel because they were the ones who were going to preach the gospel. And that's what it's all about. But religion immediately came in. And the religion said this, that to be saved, you must keep the Ten Commandments. That's the first thing. The Ten Commandments, as I said, were given to prove that man couldn't keep them. And what did religion say? You must keep them. The second thing was that the lamb itself took away your sins. Therefore, you had to do everything absolutely as it was laid down in the law. And by doing that, it was enough. It wasn't enough. It all pointed to Jesus. It was all saying to the Jews, you have to believe in the Messiah that is to come. You see? And so religion came in and they, it turned the law on its head. Now, with that basis, we can now understand Romans 3. Let's read that again, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. By keeping the law, you are not justified to God. And it goes on to qualify it. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And that's what I've said. The first reason that the law was given was to prove to people that they were sinners. That was the first part. And that's what it says. For by the law came knowledge of sin. Verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God without the law 
is manifested. The righteousness of God without the law is manifested. What is that righteousness? It's righteousness which comes as a result of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And there's no law attached to that. And this is what it goes on. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. There it is. And that's the second point about the law. It was given to show that Jesus was coming into the world. He was going to die for the sins of the people. And it goes on. Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Now, of is in there. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. And we all know what that is. That We studied it last week. It's imputation. The moment you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteousness is imputed to you. It's credited to your account. And notice what it says. By faith in Jesus Christ unto all. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And upon all them that believe. Now notice, it says, unto all, and then it says, and upon all them that believe. The message of the gospel is unto everybody. But the results of the gospel are upon those who believe. We are those who have believed. So we get the righteousness which is imputed by faith. There it is. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now what's that mean? And for there is no difference. You see, at the time that Paul was writing, there were good people and there were bad people. There were some who were keeping the law as best as they could. And there were others who didn't even know the law. And Paul's saying, there's no difference. To God, there is no difference between them. It doesn't matter whether you think you're good. It doesn't matter whether you think you're bad. It doesn't matter whether you think you're keeping the law or whether you think you're breaking the law. All have sinned. God reduces them right down to rock bottom. He says, you might think you're pretty good, but you're not. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, verse 24. Being justified, that's justification, freely, by his grace. Grace is undeserved merit. You cannot earn it. You do not deserve it. God gives it to you. Religion is anti that all the time. Religion is go and earn it. Go and get it. Go and do it. Do this, do that, and perhaps you will. No, not at all. For here it is, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now there's redemption. Come in. I don't even have to explain these terms. We've done them. And it should make a lot of sense. Verse 25. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, an appeasement, through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Now, we all know what to be just means. To justify means to make just. And the one who, justi who is a justifier is one who makes you just. And notice who is the justifier. He is. You are not. And there's the difference. Now, verse 27. Where is boasting then? You see, if you were justified by your own works, you'd have something to boast about. 
If I was sitting here tonight saying, well, listen, I've given all my money away to the Lord. I haven't sinned for at least five weeks. <laughs> I have been to the temple every day. I've been praying for hours. I've worn my trousers away with my praying. If salvation came as a result of that, I could boast about it. I could say, you see, I deserve it. And I could turn around to you and say, you haven't bothered. You haven't spent hours in the temple praying. You haven't been burning incense all day. You haven't been killing all your sheep. You don't deserve it. And I could boast, and I'd be justified. But on the basis of grace, no boasting whatsoever. Because God says, you're all as bad as one another. And you all need Jesus. Therefore we stand and we say, Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Oh, it's wonderful. Grace is the most wonderful message the world could ever be given. Because it means it doesn't matter how bad a sinner you are. It doesn't depend upon your sinfulness. It doesn't depend upon your righteousness. It depends upon what he is, his grace, and it's sufficient for you. Hallelujah. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. If only Christians would get this deep inside of them, you see, they'd stop boasting about how spiritual they are. If you're spiritual, it's because of grace. Have you noticed, by the way, sometimes uh, a man with a fantastic ministry is often a very disappointing man when you meet him close to. And you say, that's funny. How can such a man have such a ministry? The answer is grace. Uh, many people have wondered about a certain evangelist in America who've died of drunkenness. And they can't understand it. People, millions of people, hundreds of people have been healed through their ministry. Millions have heard the gospel through their ministry. And then they hear a little report that they died of drink. And they, in a tiswas, they can't understand it. It's by grace. It's by grace this is given. Now, it's excluded. Boasting is excluded. By what law? Of works? Is boasting excluded by the law of works? It is not. The law of works adds to boasting. If you are saved by your works, your boasting is justified. Not by the law of works is boasting excluded. Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude, after all this, we come to our conclusion that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And at this time, there were Jews in the body of Christ who were saying to the Gentiles, it's not good enough to believe on the Lord Jesus. You then have to fulfill the law. You see? And they were coming in. And you can imagine a person who'd just become a Christian coming in and the, the Jews were saying, oh, you've got to be circumcised. He didn't want to be circumcised. Oh, you've got to give a tenth of your income, because it's in the law, the law of tithing. Actually, a fifth of your income, I correct myself. Oh, the next thing, you mustn't do anything on the Sabbath day. You, must, you mustn't knit, no. You mustn't prepare your dinner, no. You mustn't do anything. In fact, you can take four paces uh, to move a ladder under the law. You could move a ladder, providing it was only four paces. If it was five, you couldn't do it, you see. Oh, and they were putting forward things like this to the Christians. And they didn't know where they were. Paul had to write this letter to just try and put some order in the whole belief. And here it is. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law, and the whole law is excluded. That is why we do not have to obey the law. Jesus fulfilled the whole law. He fulfilled the law how? A, he died for the sins of the whole world. B, he was the Messiah who was to come. And C, there was peace by his death. 
Now, he fulfilled the whole law. Verse 29. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. That's the point. You see, the law was only given to the Jews. And so they thought, oh well, for you to come into salvation, you must obey everything that the Jews obey. And he's saying, no, God is not only the God of the Jews, he's also the God of the Gentiles. I'm proud as a Gentile tonight that he's my God. And I'm as proud as any Jew is of the fact. I'm very proud of it. He's my father. We belong to a wonderful commonwealth in heaven, and God is the ruler of that particular commonwealth. And I'm very proud of the fact tonight, and I'm not a bit ashamed of it. I will shout about it. Hallelujah. Verse 30. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. The circumcision is the Jews. You, you are a Jew, I'm afraid, says Paul, you are only justified by faith. And you are not a Jew, you are also justified only by faith. He has put Jew and Gentile on the same level. Verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. Why do we establish the law? We establish it because if we have faith in Jesus, we know we're a sinner. And secondly, we know that Jesus came to die for the sins of the whole world. We establish the law. I prove that the law was correct. Because I know I'm a sinner, and I know Jesus is my only saviour. Now, unfortunately here, we have uh, the next word is chapter 4. Um, the chapter headings, as you know, were put in artificially, and I do wish they hadn't been put in at this particular point. Because everything that follows is very pertinent to what has gone before. Um, as if Paul hasn't made it clear enough, and I think he has, he then puts in an illustration. The Jews were very proud that their father was Abraham. They were children of Abraham. So he takes the obvious person to prove his point. He goes back to Abraham. And what does he say? What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? He says, now let's take Abraham as an example, and let's study him. Verse 2. For if, this is number four, in the first Bible study, if you were here, I define four types of if. If, and it's so. If, and it's not so. If, and it might be so, and it might not be so. And the fourth type was a debate as if. If, and let's assume for the moment it is. You see, if I were a policeman, well, I'm not a policeman, but let's assume for the moment that I am a policeman. That's what it's saying. Now, for if Abraham were justified by works, he's saying, let's assume for a moment that he were. Right? Let's assume for a moment that Abraham was justified by works. He hath whereof to glory. Now, that phrase, he hath whereof to glory, simply means he's got something to boast about. You see? If he is justified by works, he'd have something to boast about. That's what he's saying. And that's true, as we've already seen but not before God. Why not? Because, as we saw last week, all our good deeds are as filthy rags. And the only thing you can do is good deeds. And you come to God and you say, there we are, God, I've done two million good deeds. To me, it looks pretty good. I've only got two good deeds. <laughs> but to God, he looks down and it's two million filthy rags. You see, and he looks down and says, what? 
But my word says in Isaiah 64 verse 6, all thy righteousnesses are as filthy rags. All thy good deeds are as filthy rags. And there you are coming to God saying, I have two million good deeds. And it's two million filthy rags being presented <coughs> to God. No wonder it has to be by faith. That's why it says here, to me he's got something to boast about. But not before God. Not at all before God. For what saith the scripture? And, and they all knew their Old Testament. What saith the scripture? Abraham, it says, this is a quotation from Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Very interesting, actually, because in um, Genesis 15, it doesn't actually say God, it says the Lord. Abraham, it says, believed in the Lord, and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. That's imputation. In other words, when Abraham was alive, 2000 BC, he was giving the same Bible study that I gave last week. That's the message. And we think we've heard it for the first time. We haven't. 4,000 years ago, it was being preached. And it's rather interesting, because in the Greek here, it says God. In the Hebrew, it's the Lord. And of course, the Lord there was a reference to the Lord Jesus. And that's wonderful, because you see, the Lord Jesus Christ is God. When we say he is Lord, that's exactly what we mean. We are confessing the fact that he is God. So, what's it say? Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. His righteousness was not reckoned unto him because he'd done so many good deeds. He just believed on the Lord. You are in exactly the same position tonight. Nothing you can do can ever make you righteous. You just have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness. That's imputation. There it is. And that's what it's saying. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If you work hard all week and you are paid your, your wage at the end of the week, that's not grace. You've earned that. You see? But if you haven't worked hard all week and you still get the same amount of money. That's grace. You see? And that's the difference. When you believe, you haven't done anything for it. It's given to you. That's grace. You see? And here, I'm going to read it again. Now, to him that worketh is the reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. And if you are working for your salvation, you are going deeper into debt. The more you work, funnily enough, the more dirty rags you have piled up before God and how hard it is to get into the kingdom of heaven. There are many people who are not born-again believers who think that by going to church on Sunday they are actually reaching God. They are in for a shock. There are many who think that just if you live a good life, that's good enough. It's not true. It says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And that's the end. Verse 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David, now David 1000 BC, not only was Abraham preaching this message, David was. That's 3000 years ago. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, and this is a quotation from Th Psalm 32, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Impute sin. 
He won't impute it to your account. There we are. Now it goes on, but I'm going to end it there. It goes on about circumcision and goes on to prove many facts. But you see the message. The message is you're saved by grace. The message is God has removed the barrier and you are saved only on the basis of grace and not of works at all. It's very important. So we come back to the situation that the barrier between God and man has been removed. But there's a bridge across it. And the bridge is the Lord Jesus. And you know, if you think of the Lord Jesus as a door, think of him as a door. Here am I in the outer court. There is God in the inner court. And Jesus is the wide open door. If I do not happen to choose to go through that door, I cannot get into that room. Sin does not enter in any more to the issue of salvation. The issue of salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Jesus now has become the only means across to the other side. You do not get there by trying to live a sinless life. You live, try and live a sinless life for the glory of God, not for your salvation. And there's a difference. Let's have a look at just how narrow this is. Let's turn to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, and verse 13. <coughs> and this is Jesus talking. Enter ye in at the straight gate. Now a straight is a narrow. It's a narrow gate. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. How narrow is it? It's as narrow as one man, the Lord Jesus. The gateway to heaven is through the Lord Jesus Christ alone, and he's the only way in. The gateway that leads to destruction is extremely wide. It's living a good life trying your best. It's being a Jehovah's Witness. It's a broad gate and it leads straight through, you see. Oh, there are so many things. It's no good. The only way is by Jesus because he's the only person who has died for the sins of the whole world. That's how narrow the gate is. That's why in John 14, 6 it says, no man, no man, and that includes every person in this room. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You might have meditated for hours. I'm sorry. Only by Jesus do you get in to heaven. There we are. Sin is not the issue in salvation anymore. When Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, he dealt with the issue of sin, absolutely. Now, to remind you of the fact, let's look at two rather surprising verses. 1 John 2, 2. You should know these off by heart by this time. Repetition is extremely good. 1 John 2, 2. I don't mind repeating these verses over and over again, as long as we learn them. 1 John 2, 2. And he... Jesus is the propitiation, the mercy seat, for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Every man's sin who has ever lived on this earth was put on 
Jesus on the cross. He died and he paid the penalty for that sin. He has already suffered for a man's sin. That's a wonderful message, isn't it? To go and say to people, Jesus died for your sins. Um, and that includes unbelievers. He died for the sins of unbelievers. That doesn't mean to say they go to heaven. They have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, sin is only one barrier, one stone in the barrier. There are five others, and they fail on every other stone. You see? Let's have a look at another. Uh, let's turn to 2 Peter. <coughs> chapter 2 and verse 1. 2 Peter, chapter 2 and verse 1. And here it's talking about unbelievers coming into the midst of the Christians. But there were false prophets also among the people even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily, that means privately, secretly, shall bring in damnable heresies. You see, they won't do it openly. They won't stand up and say, this is what I believe. Not at all. They'll do it secretly. They'll get round to a few members of the body, spreading things. You see? And this is how they always work. Privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. They were purchased by the Lord Jesus as well as believers. Even these people who are spreading, as it says, damnable heresies. They were bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, their sin might appear in your eyes very great, but Jesus died for it. Even denying the Lord that bought them and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Sin has been removed from the scene. Let's have a look at uh, two verses that state this, and you know these very well. John 3, 18. Not John 3.16. John 3.18. To me, John 3.18 is the gospel message. I even prefer it to John 3.16, although I love John 3.16. John 3.16, of course, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, and that means me, hallelujah, believeth in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. But here is another way of stating it in verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. It does not say here, he that believeth on him and then leaves, lives a sinless life, then goes to church as often as possible, then gives all his money to the poor, then you will be saved. It doesn't say that. It says, he that believeth on him is not condemned. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? If you, the answer is yes, you are not condemned by God. Not at all. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You might live a glorious life. You might have the most wonderful outflow of money going to the needy and the poor. It is not a basis of salvation. The only basis of salvation is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are still under judgment tonight. In the same chapter it's repeated, John 3.36. John 3.36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Yes, everlasting life. We're going to deal soon with uh, the fact you cannot lose your salvation. If you've believed on the Son, you have everlasting <coughs> life as a promise. Uh, and if you lose our salvation, 
You don't have everlasting life. It's a promise. Have you believed? Then you have everlasting life. And that means it goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And it's unconditional. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not at the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Sin is not mentioned anywhere in the passage. You see? You are judged on the, the fact that you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why our gospel message is Acts uh, 16.31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Plus nothing. There are no extra things added that you have to do. Believe and thou shalt be saved. In fact, the jailer wanted to be saved. And Paul said, believe. He didn't say, first of all, uh, I want you, there are five steps in salvation. The first thing you have to do is so and so and so. The second thing you have to do is so and so and so. Then you must tell your friends. You know. And it goes on like this. That's not true. It's complicating the gospel message. The gospel message is so wonderful. You know, we can actually prevent the gospel going forth in truth by complicating it, by making it so un incomprehensible that no one understands what you're talking about. You see? It doesn't depend on sin. It depends on Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now, if you don't believe me, let's turn now to Revelation 20. Now, everyone's eyes lights up here. Revelation. Revelation is a very easy book. Why is it so easy? Because Jesus gave it as a sermon. Many sermons on the sermon that Jesus gave are hard to understand. But the sermon itself is not hard. That's why the word revelation means that which is clearly revealed. I wish some Bible teachers could be taught that before they attempt revelation. And I'm going to Revelation 20 and beginning verse 10. Now obviously we don't have time tonight to do a detailed analysis of it, though I'd love to. But it's the judgment day. This is at the end of the millennium when the unbelievers will be judged. We're looking for the word sin. The word sin is used in Revelation, and it means sin. But it's never used at the judgment seat. It's a very interesting fact. Sin is not mentioned at the judgment seat uh, here of God, the great white throne. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. The beast and the false prophet, of course, live during the tribulation. And at the end of the tribulation, they are cast into the lake of fire. At the end of the tribulation, the devil is locked up for a thousand years. And at the end of the millennium, he's let out for a season. The first thing that happens when God destroys the armies of Gog and Magog, the devil is put into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet already are. Now that's what this says. There we are where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night for ever and ever. And I saw, this is John speaking, I saw a great white throne. White, of course, means righteousness. This is a righteous judgment seat. And him that sat on it from heaven, uh, him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. The end of the millennium, the heaven and the earth flee away and there's a new heaven and a new earth. And this is Jesus sitting on the throne. And I saw the dead, small and great. By the way, small and great does not mean 
short and tall. <laughs> Does not. It means great men, men who have been perhaps prime minister of their country, men that have been presidents of the United States, men that have been great religious teachers, men who have led Hinduism for years. They'll be standing there. And the small, the sewage workers, <coughs> the teachers, the nurses, all the people who do a valuable job but are not reckoned as anything in society. We will... All professions will be there. Do you know where you are at this time? You're with him. Hallelujah. The judgment seat of Christ has already been. You've been reigning with him for nearly a thousand years now. This does not include you at all. These are the unbelievers who come back to life. Unbelievers who come back to life at the end. And they stand before God. And what happens? This is an awesome thing. The books were opened. I sort of get a, a picture here of tables with big books on them. And they're all opened. Every single one of them is opened. And all these unbelievers are lined up in front. And another book was opened, which is the Book of Life. At this time, every person's name in this book is a believer. Every person's name who is a believer is down in this book, you see, at this time. So therefore, the book of life, as it's opened, is a list of all the believers that have ever been in the whole world. And it's there. So all the books are opened, and this book is opened as well. There it is. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works, not according to their sins. Sin is not mentioned. The word works here is ergo, energy, according to the energy of their flesh. You see, only believers have imputed righteousness. It's only when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that his righteousness is given to you. All these believers are standing there with their piles of filthy rags, and they're hoping on the basis of their good deeds to get into heaven. And that's the situation that we see before us. And notice, verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And this really has the Bible commentators uh, doing somersaults. Because, <laughs> you see, the moment anyone dies, whether you die on land or at sea, you immediately, if you're a believer, go to heaven. If you're an unbeliever, you go to the place here called hell. You'll go to Hades where you're kept for the judgment. You see, the sea is literally the abyss. It's not the sea. It doesn't refer to anything salty at all. It's the abyss. And this shows us that the angels will be judged at the same time. Because this is where the angels are kept, the fallen angels. And at the same time that men are judged, the angels are going to be judged. So, and the abyss gave up the dead which were in it. These are the chained in prison spirits. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Some people say as their gospel message, you'll go to hell forever. You will not. Hell is cast into the lake of fire. Hell will not exist forever. It's the lake of fire that is the final place of judgment. This is the second death. The second death comes after the second resurrection. At the end of the millennium, the second resurrection occurs. All the dead come back to life. And the second death is when they are cast into the lake of fire. But verse 15 is the important one as far as we are concerned. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The deciding factor 
over judgment is not your works, is not your sins, it's whether your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. How do you know whether your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life? It's whether you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ or not. Every man that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, his name is in the book forever and ever and ever. This, therefore, shows quite clearly that the message we read in John 3.18 and John 3.36 states that he that believeth not is condemned already. And there is the gospel message that we have, that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. That Jesus just demands a person to say yes to him, and they will be saved. And we say this not on the basis of what we feel or what, what we think, we say it on the basis of the word of God. Now, I want to go on now with that under our belt, as it were, to the unforgivable sin. Because from this basis, we are now in a position to understand the unforgivable sin. I don't think there are many Christians around who at some time or other have not felt that they have committed the unforgivable sin. I remember one day when I was first saved, about two years old, I locked my door and I refused to come out. I said to God, God, I have committed the unforgivable sin yet again. <laughs> and, therefore, I'm not going to have any more fellowship. I'm never going to ask you for forgiveness again. Uh, and I didn't want anything more to do with God, because I felt I had sinned in a way that was unforgivable, totally unforgivable to God. And unfortunately, I didn't have a good, kind person who understood the Word of God around to tell me that it was just sheer bunkum, that it was emotional rubbish that I was feeling at that time. In fact, it was the Lord that, over many weeks, had to woo me back to Him. And I won't tell you how He did it, I think I've told people in the past, but I came back to the Lord wonderfully. Oh, I was so thrilled when I then found out what the unforgivable sin was. May I say this? It is not suicide. It is not some sexual sin. It is not a sin that you keep on committing. Alright? It's not calling your brother a fool, which is what some people think. And there is a scriptural backing for that, so they think. It's none of these things. Not at all. How do we know that? We know it from certain scriptures that are given. Uh, if we can take a few minutes just to read these through. First of all, 1 John 1 7. That surprised you, didn't it? You thought I was going to say 1 John 1 9. I said that before I started the Bible study. 1 John 1 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. And the word all means all sin. It means every single sin that you'd like to name. All sin. It doesn't say all in brackets except one. Close brackets. All sin. You don't believe it? Perhaps you will only believe the Old Testament. Let's turn to Isaiah 1.18. Isaiah 1.18 Now, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 Come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. That's grace, if ever I've heard it. That statement is grace. That God should be willing to reason with an ant like me. Praise the Lord. Oh, it's wonderful grace. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, 
they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isn't that wonderful? And when this was translated to one African tribe, it was, they didn't know what snow was. So it was white as coconut kernel. I don't care, it's white. And notice, all sins are included in that, you see. Uh, let's have a look at another. Isaiah 43 and verse 25. Isaiah 43 and verse 25. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. There is no sin that you can commit that God will not forgive. So what is the unforgivable sin then? It is a sin that Jesus could not die for. And a sin that he did not die for. And the only sin that he could not and did not die for is rejection of himself. If you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the unforgivable sin. You can be on your deathbed, and a doctor can come in and say, I have a pill here which will heal you. And if you say, no, you will die. And it's not the doctor's fault. The unforgivable sin is rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3.18 states just that. He that does not believe is condemned already. That's the unforgivable sin. Now, there are many statements of it. I'm going to take a one that I love. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 and verse 22. Beginning verse 22, that is. Because the problem some people <coughs> find is that this is often called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I should warn you now that the moment you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, the first thing Satan does, he comes along and he starts putting funny ideas into your head. Occasionally you'll get a thought saying, oh, this isn't God. And then you think, oh, that's it, bless me against the Holy Spirit. You see? There are many people today who are wonderful believers who really believe that speaking with tongues is satanic. They are mistaken, but they really do believe that it is satanic. It is not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Of course not. They're wonderfully born-again believers. Uh, here it is. Uh, Mark 3, beginning verse 22. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of devils casteth he out devils. And he called them unto him, and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Now here's the point. Verse 28. Verily I say unto you, all sins... Yes. I love it so much because it immediately states all sins. You think of your sins. They're all forgiven. Confess them to the Lord and they're forgiven. We as Christians, by the way, have got to be scrupulous about 1 John 1 9. Every sin you commit has got to be confessed to the Lord. It doesn't affect your salvation, but it affects your relationship with the Lord and it keeps you out of fellowship. We have got to be scrupulous. And I wonder whether we're scrupulous enough about the sins we commit. I wonder about it. 
Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. What's it mean? Why is it called... Why is it called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? For this reason. Jesus, as God, was omnipotent. But when he came down to earth, he took the form of a slave. He gave up his own power, and he only moved by the power of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit through Jesus was begun, of course, when he was baptized. When the dove came down upon him, any miracles Jesus did, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. Any preaching he did, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. He could have done it by his own power, but he laid his own power aside. And he took on the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the Holy Spirit's ministry? We've got to see that. And actually, it's a statement of the unforgivable sin. John 16. Keep your finger in Mark 3. I'll be back. John 16. And verse 8. And this is Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit who will come. But of course the Holy Spirit was in Jesus at this moment. And when he has come, what will he do? His ministry is threefold. He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now notice verse 9. Of sin, because they've led such an awful life. Of sin, because they keep on committing the same sins over and over again. Of sin, because they really are so shocking. No. Verse 9. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of sin, because they believe not on me. That is the unforgivable sin. The only sin which you can commit, or any member of the human race can commit, is not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the very sin the Holy Spirit will come to reprove the world of. I'm going to read it again. Of sin, because they believe not on me. If you do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not saved. And you are in danger of the wrath that is to come. That's sin. That's the unforgivable sin. Well, there we are. If you ever are asked a question about the unforgivable sin, the key scripture is just this. John 16, verse 9. Of sin, singular. Not of sins. He doesn't convict the world of sins. He convicts them of sin. And the only sin that he convicts them of is not believing on the Lord Jesus. It's the unforgivable sin. Well, now let's turn back. Because in Mark 3, the Holy Spirit was <coughs> moving through Jesus and he was performing miracles. What, mirac what were these miracles for? They were to prove that he was the Messiah who was come into the world to save his people from their sins. And they said, he does these miracles by the power of Satan. They said, he uh, gets these devils out by the power of Satan. The, the ministry that Jesus had, the miracles, the deliverance, was only there to prove he was Messiah. And by rejecting the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus, they were rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. They blasphemed against the Holy Spirit because they said, Holy Spirit, you are a liar. They knew from Isaiah that when the Messiah came, he would do many miracles. And what they were saying is, the Holy Spirit is a liar because these are not real miracles. But it all amounts to the same things. They were rejecting Jesus as their Lord. And notice what it says here. 
But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost, that is, reject Jesus as the Messiah, hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Notice, he's only in danger of it. Why? Because until he dies, the Holy Spirit will preach the message again and again and again and again. What's the message? That there is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved but the name of the Lord Jesus. The message, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, plus nothing. This is the message that the Holy Spirit is spreading through the world and through us. This is the message that we have. And we can tell the world today that if they do not believe on the Lord Jesus, they have committed the unforgivable sin. If you die having not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no forgiveness at all for you. But if you are sitting here as a believer tonight, I have very good news for you. You have not committed the unforgivable sin because you have personally received the Lord Jesus as your Saviour. Therefore, every sin that you can commit has been taken by Jesus on the cross. He has been judged for it. Everything has been done. He's judged for your sins. He's paid the penalty for your sins. You are born again. You are now God's son. God's character is now happy when it looks down upon you. All your good deeds have been taken care of. How? Because they've been smothered by the righteousness of God. And you now have eternal life instead of the small threescore years and ten that you had before. Brethren, I hope from this time forth not one of us will be allowed to get into depression thinking that we have just committed the unforgivable sin. It is impossible because it's a contradiction. If you are a believer, by definition... You have not committed the unforgivable sin. And conversely, if you are tonight an unbeliever, you are in danger because you are committing at this very moment the sin of rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he himself said was unforgivable. Therefore, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Amen.